Father in heaven, today as we gather here in your church, we're just thrilled to be here. Surrounded by other believers where we get the privilege of encouraging one another as the Bible tells us we do when we gather together. We're privileged to be here to worship you and we pray that our worship was worthy of you. Thank you for receiving that from us. We're privileged to be here to open our Bibles to learn and I pray that through your spirit we will do that very thing. We will learn. Teach us, Father. We are privileged to be here because the church is a place of support. It's a place of accountability. It's a place of connectivity. And when you are the the tie that binds us together, there is no place better than this. So thank you, Lord, for the gift of your church. And we are privileged to be here because church, worship on Sundays, any other time throughout the course of the week, gives us just a tiny little idea of what heaven will be like. And for that, we are so thankful. Lord, in our small-minded ways, we, we can take this idea of worship and magnify it a thousandfold and still fall short of what it will be like to be in your presence around your throne. Today, I'm praying very specifically that you will stretch our thinking about heaven and what waits for us as your children. And I pray, Lord, that you will make hearts sensitive to the point of longing to be there and to be with you. And I pray, Lord, those that don't know you, that their hearts will be made sensitive and receptive to a relationship with you. We ask all of that in Jesus' name with great faith. Amen. If we were to just ask how many of you know what a conspiracy theory is, how many of you could say you do? Just raise your hand. You've, you know what a conspiracy theory is. And then once you've raised your hand and said, yeah, I, I know what it is. I know the whole concept. If I were to ask you to tell me about some of the most popular conspiracy theories, you could probably start building a list. Most of us could. For some of you, you may be a person that really subscribes to conspiracy theories, and so you have studied them and, and found yourself believing a lot of what is shared within the theory, and that's an easy thing to do. It's easy to get caught up in those things, and some of them are, are based on truth. There's no question about that. But as we were building a list together, some things would start to rise to the top, a common theme of conspiracy theories that people have studied. Here's how I know that. I did a quick internet search this past week looking for the most searched conspiracy theories of 2020, and I was somewhat surprised. Last year, that term conspiracy theory was used over and over and over again, so I was surprised to see the ranking of theories as they began to build on the list. Here's what I found. The most searched conspiracy theory of 2020 was the Kennedy assassination. Of all things, the Kennedy assassination, was there one shooter or two? All these years later, that is still the most popular theory. That is still the most popular conspiracy to investigate. Number two, I thought, well, this is going to hit really close to home and it's going to be so current that it won't shock me at all. But the second most searched conspiracy theory last year 
was Area 51. Research being done on aliens and their ships starting back in the 1950s in New Mexico. Area 51, second most popular search, internet search. Then in a, a list of 38 popular, popular conspiracy theories that were searched for last year, some others began to pop off of the page that were really interesting to me. I don't know exactly what number it was, but it was near the top of the list. People were really curious about the Bigfoot sightings in the state of Washington, and they searched for it. I got kind of curious myself, 2,032 Bigfoot sightings in the state of Washington. People wanted to know more about it. There were also some that were a little closer to us here in Montana, closer even than Washington, and this one was near the top of the list as well. The conspiracy theory surrounding the volcano that sits underneath Yellowstone National Park. Theorists believe that the government knows exactly when the volcano will erupt. Now, I don't know how they can believe that. I would imagine that God's the only one with that ticking clock. But the theorists believe that they know exactly when it's going to happen. And here's why they believe that it is coming very quickly. Because of the number of animals, wildlife, that are fleeing the park, that are running outside the boundaries of the national park right now. The skeptics to the theory say that the animals are not fleeing because of the impending explosion of a volcano. They're just running from the tourist. <laughs> I kind of like that one. And then there's this one, and this, this one just took me completely by surprise. I have lived in the state of Montana for 17 years. I have never heard anything about this. I was so blown away by it that I called Deanie into my office to see if he knew about it. And Deanie, you've lived in Montana 54 years. He has lived in Montana 54 years, and he has never heard this. And you've lived in Libby that entire time, correct? So very close. The number of Loch Ness monster-like sightings on Flathead Lake. From 1889 to 1918, there have been 109 sightings of a creature similar to the Loch Ness monster. I'd never heard of that. Danny had never heard of that. Les, you have fished Flathead Lake a number of times. Had you ever heard that? Not lately, he says. By the way, when he said that first service, I thought he said not legally. And I wasn't... <laughs> Wasn't at all sure what that meant, and we'll, we'll talk about it later. However, Dini did tell me after first service, now that he knows that there is a Loch Ness monster-like critter at Flathead Lake, it explains some of the fish that he has lost, that he's hooked onto. So the theory will rage now. It will rage, and we'll see what happens with that. Those are just five of the 38 most popular, popular conspiracy theories that were searched for in 2020. There's a number of others, and you could fill in the blanks, and the list could just grow exponentially. It'd get huge by the time we were done. But that's really not my point this morning. I don't want us to talk about conspiracy theories, but I do want us to talk just briefly about another conspiracy. It has been referred to as the conspiracy of silence. The conspiracy of silence. Here it is, up on the screen. Conspiracy of silence. You may have never heard of it before. By definition, this is what it means. It's an agreement to say nothing about an issue that should be generally known. An agreement to say nothing about an issue that should generally be known. 
Most often the conspiracy of silence is attached to the subject of death. People don't want to talk about it. Even when a person is dying and everyone, including that person, knows that they are dying, the conspiracy of silence comes to rest over the situation and people don't talk about it. Billy Graham in his wonderful book, Facing Death, discusses the conspiracy of silence in one of the most poignant of ways. Take a look at what Billy has to say. Some believe that telling the truth to a person who may be dying is destructive to his morale. The patient's resigned comment, I think I'm going to die, may likely be met by the reassuring deception. Now don't talk like that. You'll probably outlive us all. The kind of deception is practiced by medical personnel as well as by family, thinking they are being kind and acting in the patient's best interest. All this assumes that people don't want to think about death, especially their own. However, studies indicate that most people are willing to think and talk about dying, even though they may be frightened by the idea. More than likely, it is the process of dying that frightens people, not death itself. The truth is, all of us have our time to die. The conspiracy of silence runs so deep that if it is left unchecked, it can turn into a diagnosable phobia known as necrophobia necrophobia. Here that is up on the screen just so you can see it. It may very well be that you wrestle with it. And if you don't know whether you do or not, the definition of necrophobia will help. The pathological fear of death that plagues some and paralyzes others. It's real. It is real. The fear of death and dying runs rampant through our culture and through society. It even runs rampant through the church, a place that is filled with Christians, with believers in Jesus Christ. The fear of death and dying is so strong that the conspiracy of silence still hangs over the idea even within modern Christianity to the point that a number of Christians are still paralyzed to the point of necrophobia. They are so paralyzed by it, they can't even talk about it. Yet the Bible would tell us that there is an antidote to death available to every person. That antidote comes through Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible with you, open to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says... Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now that is great teaching on necrophobia and the fear of death. Once it takes root in a person's life, it becomes not only this diagnosable phobia, but it becomes something that enslaves people. The fear of death can enslave people. And it's not just the conspiracy of silence that hangs over them. It is a conspiracy of slavery authored by the devil himself. Yet the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus broke it. Jesus broke it. There are 
two different times in this little passage that we read that a tiny little word, two-letter word is used, and it gives us such great insight to what this verse really means or this passage really means. That two-letter word that is so small yet so powerful is the word he. There it is up on the screen. It is used by the writer of Hebrews in reference to Jesus himself. If we were to remove the word he and plug in Jesus' formal name, we can see the depth of teaching in the passage. Let's do that. Verse 14 again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise took par- or partook of the same things, that through death Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus destroyed the fear of death. For every believer, for every Christian, Jesus destroyed the fear of death. Jesus destroyed necrophobia. Jesus lifted the conspiracy of silence from the subject of death so that we could talk about it. And we can talk about it not in a a fearful, daunting way, but rather in a hopeful way. You might say, hold on there, preacher. I'm not sure that I can go there yet. And I know Jesus. I have him living in my heart. I'm not sure that I can get to the place where I can say that the fear of death has been lifted from me. Even though the writer of Hebrews says that we are no longer enslaved by it, I still kind of am. I get locked up. And I don't want to talk about my death or anybody else's. So how is that really possible that the slavery of fear has been broken and lifted when it comes to this subject? Well, the answer to it is pretty simple. It has been because of what Jesus did. His death, burial, and resurrection. He led us through death, through the grave, into resurrection so that we can have hope. All we have to do is follow him. But there are some other practical things that we can do to help with this whole issue as well. The first is to look at our life through a temporal lens to see the struggles that we face through a temporal lens so that we are able to keep them in the right perspective. Let me show you what I mean. The Apostle Paul was a master at this. Let's go to the book of Philippians. A few weeks ago, we started a short series on this powerful little book in the New Testament, and that's where we're going to be today. So we're going to start in verse 18, the last half of it. But as we get there, I want to set the stage for it. In order to do that, I have to remind you that you cannot read the book of Philippians without the book of Acts. You have to read Philippians through the lens of Acts. And we did that last week. We talked about Paul's unique approach to struggles and trials. We walked very quickly through seven chapters in the book of Acts to look at all of the things that had happened to him before Paul could say, and all of this has happened that the gospel might be advanced. It's all okay. If you weren't with us last week, you can go to LibbyChristianChurch.com, listen to the message, and it will catch you up to all of those things that Paul was talking about. So once he summarizes his perception and his perspective of those things that he had to wrestle with in a temporal way, he says this in verse 18, the last half of it. Yes, and I will rejoice. 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or, listen to this, by death. That's that temporal point of view. Paul is able to say that all of the struggles, all of the things that I have faced, they are only temporary. And here's what I know, here's what I know, that they have all happened to me, that Christ will be honored either by my life, which means how I approach them, how I handle the struggles, how I handle the challenges, how I handle the difficulties. God will be honored by how I do that in my life. Or, and this is so telling, in my death, in my death, God will be honored by it. Now, by saying that, Paul is helping us understand that these struggles, these trials that we face right here, right now in this life are so temporal that when this life is over, they will no longer matter and God will be glorified. We will have 60, 70, 80, 90 for a few people on past that 90 mark years on this earth. Some of those years are going to be absolutely wonderful and some of them are going to be filled with trials and challenges. But that is such a brief period of time in the overall scheme of eternity that if we can gather up a temporal point of view that says no matter what's going on, it isn't going to last forever. That's what Paul's saying. It isn't going to last forever. I'm going to be able to get through this, and then in my death, God is going to be honored because all of this is going to be gone. It isn't going to matter. These challenges and these struggles, they're not going on into heaven with me. They are staying here. That's the temporal point of view. That is the temporal point of view. You might say, well, that was a nice message that Paul preached, And that's just preacher talk. That's not somebody that really understands and really lives that. Well, I would argue with you. This is not just one message that Paul preached. This is how he lived his life. Which, by the way, the best messages are lived, not preached. Paul lived this. We know that because he wrote to other friends, other believers, the exact same message. It isn't just a one-time occurrence in Paul's letters and writings. It's not just a one-time occurrence in his life. Paul lived this temporal point of view. He lived with an expectation and a hope of what waits for him. Don't believe me. Believe the Bible. I'm going to go to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Starting in verse 16. The apostle writes, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. They're temporal. Any struggle or challenge you face here is transient, Paul says in the English Standard Version. They're temporal. And they are so minor compared to the glory that waits for the children of God. So once we can embrace that temporal mindset, we can get to a spot where we can look past the momentary into the eternal. 
We can look past the momentary into the eternal. And that's how this slavery of death, this burden of death, gets lifted off of us. When we can look past the momentary into the eternal. When that happens, the conspiracy of silence is lifted. We can talk about it because I know what waits. We can talk about it because I know where my hope rests. I can talk about it because I'm no longer bound by that type of fear because I know what God has in store for me. Here's how Paul captures that. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 1. Verse 21. He says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. That's what his whole life is about here, and that's how the Lord will be glorified in his life, because it's all about Jesus. It's just about Jesus. Everything he does, whether he's working or whether he's playing, it's all about Jesus. I just, I just want to live for Christ. That's what Paul's saying. But to die, to die is gain, he says. To die is gain. Now, Paul would go on and say, I desire to depart, to depart, to leave this. Did you catch that? Look again. He says this in verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That word depart, It's a small little word and one that we could skip right over, but it is very significant. Look at it up here. It's the word depart. It matters in what Paul is saying. In the Greek language, this word depart has two different applications. The first is a military application, meaning very simply to tear down your tent and go home. That's what depart means. In a military situation, it means the battle is over. We're done. Tear down your tent and go home. Paul's saying, I desire to depart. I desire that moment where the battle is over and I get to tear down my tent and leave. I'm out of here. I'm leaving the battle behind and I'm going home. That whole idea is captured in other places as well, like 2 Corinthians once again. Chapter 5. Why don't you join me there? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. By the way, two of the passages that we are looking at today are the most significant passages you can deal with for what happens to a believer when they die. If you are a Bible mapper, go to the front cover of your Bible, find a blank page and write what happens to a believer when they die. And then right underneath that heading, put Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Or he says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ. You write Philippians chapter 1, 21 and 22. And then from there, you put 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 through 8. Then you go back to Philippians chapter 1, and in the margin of your Bible, write 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 through 8. And then when somebody asks you what happens to a believer when they die, in the front cover of your Bible, you already have the heading, and you have a map. Just sit down and walk them through it. You don't have to answer the question in the conspiracy of silence. When that's lifted, let the Bible answer the question. So it starts in Philippians, it goes to 2 Corinthians, and then any other place that you want to add to your map, you add it. 
And in the margin of your Bible, put the next spot that you're going to go to so that you're always traveling the same path. Bible mapping is a cool tool. Use it. It is a really cool tool. Now, with all that said, I'm sure you're at 2 Corinthians 5, so let's read together. Verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Here's the deep teaching of that. The moment a Christian dies, we are in the presence of the Lord. You take your last breath here, and your first breath is in the presence of the Lord. That's how quickly it happens, just like that. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what Paul's teaching. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now there's that tent idea, the military idea that the battle is over, I'm packing up my tent and I'm going home. I'm on my way. I'm going to get there really fast. Well, the second use of the word depart in Philippians chapter 1 is an agricultural use, which means to take off the yoke. Agriculturally, that means to lift the yoke off of your oxen, the work is done. Put the oxen away, the work is done. Take the yoke off of them. Well, what we do in Christianity at death is we exchange our yoke. We take off the yoke of this world, the burden, the yoke of burden. It is lifted off of us and we put on the yoke of Christ in heaven. And that's a totally different yoke. Helps us understand that there's still work to do in heaven, but listen to what Jesus says about it in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what that word depart means. When Paul says, I desire to depart, he's saying, I desire to pack up my tent, take off my yoke, and head home to be with the Lord. There is no conspiracy of silence sitting around that. That's Paul saying, there's no fear of death for me because this is what it means. I'm tearing down my tent, I'm taking off my yoke, and I'm going into the presence of the Lord. Now, by talking that way, Paul helps us understand that there are two different ways that people come to know Jesus. The first is through rescue. Which means somebody understands that heaven or hell waits for us and they don't want to go to hell. And they understand that Jesus is the way out of hell to avoid hell. 
So they approach salvation as a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's how they do it. And that's all they want from the Lord is rescue. That is it. They want nothing else. Nothing else. I just want to know that I'm not going to hell. Heaven will be populated with a number of people that wanted only that from Jesus Christ. That's all they wanted. And if that's all they wanted, okay, that's what they have. But there is a second group of people that want something much deeper. And they come to salvation not just for rescue, but for relationship. I want to walk with the Lord. I want to walk with the Lord. I want to know Him, and I want to be known by Him. I want to spend all of my days, however many I have here, getting to know Him so that the right foundation is laid for me. And when I see Him face to face, it will be nothing but an increase from there. I'm going to know Him better, and I'm going to spend forever getting to do it. For those that only want rescue, listen to me, listen, that requires nothing spiritual. That requires nothing spiritual. But for those that want relationship, it requires every part of you, and it unveils something magical, something mysterious, this wonderful relationship with God that says, I have no fear. I have no fear of death because I walk with God. I am a child of God. And that doesn't mean, please don't make this mistake, that there is no fear of the process of dying. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there's no fear then of death. And the slavery is broken because of Jesus. He made it possible. And that relationship just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says, for me to live is Christ, verse 21 of chapter 1 of Philippians, but to die is gain. To die is gain. When you read that, it should prompt a question in your mind and in your heart. What does he mean by gain? What is he talking about? Well, it's a really complicated question with a fairly simple answer. Now, doesn't that sound like I'm riding both sides of the fence? That's a complicated question with a fairly simple answer. But even in its simplicity, the answer is still somewhat complicated. Let me show you what I mean. The answer is found in the book of Isaiah. Why don't you turn there with me? Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 6. At Christmas time, you often hear these words. Chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Back in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I want to encourage you to underline that word increase, highlight it, put asterisks in the margin of your Bible, draw arrows to that word increase. 
Because that word, that singular word, gives us insight into what heaven will be like, like few other words that we ever find. Now, you can go to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and you can read John's picture of what heaven will be like. Streets of gold, gates of pearls, on and on and on and on. It's a beautiful description. It's just the words that John was able to grab hold of, but some of those words in that picture go beyond our comprehension. So we can boil it down to just this word increase. Did you catch that Isaiah said there will be a continual increase of peace forever? Now that's heaven. Heaven will be a continual increase. Paul uses the word gain. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It is an increase. Hank Hanegraaff has been called the Bible answer man for a number of years. I really like the way he approaches this. Listen to what he says. Again, this comes from Hank Hanegraaff. An all too prevalent perception in Christianity and the culture is that heaven is going to be one big bore. That, however, is far from true. Rather, heaven will be a place of continuous learning, growth, and development. By nature, humans are finite, and that is how it will always be. While we have an incredible capacity to learn, we will never come to the end of learning. To begin with, we will never exhaust exploring our Creator. God, by nature, is infinite, and we are limited. Thus, what we now merely apprehend about the Creator, we will spend an eternity seeking to comprehend. Imagine finally beginning to get a handle on how God is one in nature and three in person. Imagine exploring the depths of God's love, wisdom, and holiness. Imagine forever growing in our capacities to fathom His immensity, immutability, and incomprehensibility. And to top it all off, the more we come to know Him, the more there will be to know. Furthermore, we will never come to the end of exploring fellow Christians. Our ability to appreciate one another will be enhanced exponentially. Imagine being able to love another human being without even a tinge of selfishness. Finally, we will never come to an end of exploring the Creator's creative handiwork. The universe will literally be our playground. Even if we were capable of exhausting the new heaven and the new earth, God would create brand new vistas for us to explore. Will heaven be perfect? Absolutely. Will it be boring? Absolutely not. We will learn without error, but make no mistake about it. We will learn, we will grow, and we will develop. Far from being dead and dull, heaven will be an exhilarating, exciting experience that will never come to an end. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? So why is there a conspiracy of silence that rests on it when that's what it means? Heaven is ever increasing. The peace of heaven is ever increasing, forever, 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 and forever more. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain, Paul says. And he can say that because Paul saw heaven. He saw it with his own eyes. He was so privileged that God took him up into heaven and he allowed him to see it and then God sent him back. And when God sent him back, he sent him back with his hand over his mouth, God's hand over Paul's mouth. It's a hard thing for a preacher to accept. And he said, now you can't tell anybody about it. Don't you tell them what you saw. He didn't let Paul do that. That right was reserved for the apostle John. Paul never had that right. But what he did say 
is for me to live as Christ, but to die as gain. I'm looking forward to it. I desire to depart, to pack up my tent and lift off this, this yoke and go there. That's where I want to be, Paul said, in the presence of God, face to face with Him. But Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 1 to say it's better for me to remain. For your sake, it's better for me to remain. I have to stay here. And even when we have a longing for heaven to be in the presence of the Lord, God's timing is always perfect and we will not be there until he says it's time to tear down your tent and take off the yoke. So sometimes heaven waits. And the question is, how do we wait for heaven then? If the longing is so real and it is so true and the conspiracy of silence has been lifted off of it and I can talk openly about my desire to be there, how do I wait? Well, glad you asked because Paul answers. Let's go back into Philippians chapter 1. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God." For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul sums it up this way. As long as you're waiting for heaven, you keep living for Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. You live for Jesus. As long as you have to wait, you live for Jesus. I would offer to you that you live in such a way that you outlive your life, that your life goes on past you. If you're living for the gospel, that's the way it works. I'll give you just an example from Mark chapter 14. We're just almost done. Verse 3, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table... A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This lady, she lived in such a way that the message of her life outlives her. She did what she could for the Lord. You do the same. As long as heaven waits, you do what you can for the Lord and you do it in such a way that it lasts beyond you so that when the gospel is told, you might just be a part of it. I remember when they said this or when they did that. You let the message of your life and your relationship with Jesus Christ last beyond you. Plant the right seeds. 
for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And it still leaves us wondering, how do we do that? Well, in the verses that we read in Philippians chapter 1, Paul gives us three ideas that will help with it. Number one, stand firm in your faith. Don't let anything move you. Don't let anything move you. Struggles will come. Trials will come. Challenges will come. You stand firm in your faith. Don't let anything move you. Number two, strive for the gospel. You make Jesus a part of your life and you strive for the gospel, the spreading of the good news. And number three, do both of those fearlessly. You do both of those things. You stand firm and strive for the gospel fearlessly. Because when the time is right, the Lord will come to you and say, tear down your tent. You are coming home. Take off your yoke. This is over. But you do those two things fearlessly. So that when he tells you to do that, the Lord himself will be saying, well done, well done. And you will bring other people with you into the kingdom of heaven. So you strive for the gospel fearlessly that those that you know and love will know Jesus and they'll be there with you. Lift the conspiracy of silence off of death and tell people, tell people what it means to know Jesus and to know that in death you can gain forever and ever and ever and ever. The increase of heaven will be staggering. Invite them into it. Lift the conspiracy off so that they long for it. Talk about it because you've been freed from it. So tell them fearlessly. And maybe just maybe you need to remind them of the rescue. Because if the joy of heaven and the peace of heaven, according to Isaiah, is ever increasing, what does that say about hell? The pain and the suffering is ever increasing. Why in the world would you want to go there? Rescue them from that, that you might introduce them to a relationship with God that is ever increasing. And it's all possible through His Son, Jesus Christ. So introduce Him. Strive for the gospel and let other people know what you know. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, when we study things like this in the Bible, man, it quickens our spirit, stirs our soul, just to look at what waits for us as your children. Thank you for it, Lord. Thank you that you gave us open windows to look into heaven, but then they go closed again so that we can be curious. Thank you for the mystery of what waits, but the reality of you being there. Thank you for all those things. And thank you, Father, for Jesus leading the way. Thank you for the love that that entailed and encompasses. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts that you have saved us. Praying now for those that don't know that relationship, would you let that be changed today? Make them bold to seek the answers. And Father, in your faithfulness, 
Help them leave in peace. In Jesus' name, amen.